Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A new tax year and a new way of saving for the under-40s. But is the LISA, or Lifetime ISA, really the best way of saving for a property or a pension? Prices in the shops are rising, but what about the stock market? We ask how long investors can play the inflation trade. And have you been flexing your plastic? The financial regulator has been flexing its muscles about growing credit card debts. We hear what this could mean for you. And finally, for those heading off on holiday, we reveal how to avoid sky-high charges at the airport. Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's weekly podcast on personal finance and investing. I'm Claire Barrett, FT Money Editor, and I'll be giving you this week's money news in downloadable form. Firstly, if you're aged between 18 and 39 and have some spare cash, you may well be interested in the new Lifetime ISA. Designed to help young people who want to buy a property or save for a pension, you can pay in up to £4,000 a year. The 25% bonus means you could get up to £1,000 free from the government, but you can only use it to buy your first home or access after the age of 60, otherwise heavy penalties apply. Critics have said that the product is far too complicated for young people to understand and could even be a future mis-selling scandal. Joining me to discuss is Deborah Mattinson, co-founder of Britain Thinks, the research and strategy group which has partnered with the FT this week to research millennial attitudes to savings and the Lifetime ISA itself. Welcome, Deborah. Thank you. Hi. So, firstly, tell our listeners about the project that we've been working on in FT Money this week. So, what we've done is a two-stage project. The first stage was qualitative. So, in-depth, it was a workshop with 12 participants who were all millennials, a sort of cross-section of millennials. And what we were aiming to do, we spent three hours with them to really kind of dig deep and really understand their relationship with money and finances, and then very specifically how they responded to the concept of the LISA or LISA. What we then did was a quantitative stage because we wanted to actually see how the hypothesis that we we drew from that were borne out quantitatively. So we did a a large-scale poll, a 1,000 millennials, a 1,000 people aged between 18 and 39, and we asked them some of the questions that had been posed in the workshop. Yeah, it was great fun. Um, it was and great fun. We've got some wonderful photographs and comments from the millennials who were in the workshop and obviously the findings of the research that we did afterwards. So tell us what your biggest takeaway about young people's attitudes to money 
was from all of the research. Yes. I mean, I think in a way, overall, the biggest takeaway is that the millennials' attitude to money is simultaneously, it's scary Mm-hmm. And it's also boring. It's odd for something to be both of those things simultaneously, but it actually is. So they are quite terrified, actually, about money and very insecure about how little they know. And certainly our poll bore out that it's true. They don't know that much. They're scared because they think that their situation is worse than previous generations. And again, research bears them out on this. I mean, it is the case, I think, that this generation is in a worse, is worse placed than the generation before. And they feel that. And they look a lot to the older generation for help and support, both literally in terms of helping them with finances, but also for advice. And I think that came through very strongly. Now, when it comes to the Lifetime ISA itself, What were their attitudes and reservations about this product? So I think at at face value, they found the idea attractive. And when we showed them an ad, we sat down with them and we talked them through in some detail. Probably they spent more time thinking about it than millennials ever would in reality, (laughs) let's face it. And their first uh, reaction was that it is quite a strong and attractive idea. They liked the bonus. They liked the idea, actually, of the discipline of being made to save. But when they reflected on this in more depth, I think that there were quite a lot of barriers that they faced when they thought about it. So one of the things that we found was that for a lot of these millennials, you know, actually saving is quite low down their list. The the top priority is paying off debt and a lot of them are expecting Mm. to live with debt all of their lives. Then it's into sort of spending on experiences like festivals and holidays. And that's before you then start to think about saving for longer term things. And pension is a very long way down the line. And actually, a lot of them just felt that they, they wouldn't know enough about it or be able to kind of, you know, put enough money away to make it worthwhile in any way at all. Mm. So, that you know, there were quite a few reservations, I think, in the end. Indeed. And, and we should also mention the reservations that the older members of the group had about whether the lifetime ISA as a pension would actually be better or worse than whatever pension arrangements they currently had. Now, that's something that we do go into in a lot of detail in the piece in FT Money. Yeah, and they just didn't know enough, I think, to be able to answer that question. They knew it was a question they needed to answer, but they they had absolutely no idea. Well, the piece will reveal it all. But if you were in charge, Deborah, of the marketing campaign for the Lifetime ISA, who would you have targeted that? Well, you know, we thought a lot about this uh, after doing the work. And I think I'd have been rather inclined to to target the parents rather than the, the, the young people themselves. One of the things that was very clear through this is this sense that not only is wealth inherited, but knowledge about wealth is inherited. Mm-hmm. And so many of them are looking at their parents, both for physical help, for actual help in terms of money, but for help in terms of advice as well. I think that targeting parents would be better. But of course, that does beg another question, which is, what about the young people, the young adults who don't have parents who can support them in this way? And, you know, there, there's a whole issue about financial exclusion, I think, that, that you know, that, that, that question is begged with all of that thinking. Yeah, certainly. And, and as well as the article in FT Money, which is online now at ft.com slash money for the new tax year, that will be in the money section of FT Weekend newspaper this Saturday. We also have two pieces running alongside it. Um, the first, we put all of your questions about the lifetime ISA direct to the Treasury. And lo and behold, the Treasury has responded, telling you everything you need to know about the property value limits and other queries that readers and our workshop came up with. And I've also written my column on the issue because I scrape in to the Lifetime ISA by a mere six days. I turn 40 next week uh, and I've written about how I think really this is a product that will only work for those who are looking to buy a home or those who are already very rich. Thanks to Deborah. 
I look forward to seeing you again on our podcast very mm. soon. Since the UK's vote to leave the European Union, the weaker pound has pushed prices higher across the board. UK inflation, as we know, is rising rapidly and ultimately this will hurt consumers. But what does it mean for investors? Joining me today is Micah Curry, the FT's income investor columnist and investment director at Fidelity International, to talk about the reflation trade. Welcome, Micah. Thanks, Claire. A lot has been written about the so-called Trump trade and the idea that the US president's reflationary policies could drive US growth. But what about us here in the UK? Well, it is an interesting question, and it's really staggering to think that we're now talking about the risks and opportunities of inflation when it wasn't that long ago that we were worried about deflation taking hold in the UK. Of course, deflation and inflation is equally detrimental to an economy. That being said, looking at the investment side of things, if we look back over history, there is a sweet spot in the inflation range that really suits equities quite well. Moderate inflation, inflation rising from a very low level can be good for the stock market. Now that sweet spot normally sits at between 2 and 2.5%. Next week we've got a new inflation reading out, but based on the last one, inflation is now at 2.3%. So we bang in the middle of that sweet spot and that really bodes well for the stock market. So considering the fact that two years, maybe longer, of uncertainty lie ahead with the torturous Brexit negotiations, where do the investment opportunities lie, do you think? Well, the first and the most obvious point that's always made is that the UK stock market is a very different beast to the UK economy. We've got a lot of global earners. We've got a lot of multinationals who make their money overseas and who report their dividends in US dollars. So the weaker pound has been good news. It's good news for income investors because it means that dividends really have received a boost thanks to that alchemy of exchange rate gains. Now, a lot of professional investors, a lot of fund managers that I've spoken to are creating a bit of an uncertainty buffer because we know there's going to be uh, ups and downs, there's going to be volatility with the Brexit negotiations. They've tilted their portfolios to those international names in the mining, oil and engineering sector as a way to shield earnings against future uncertainty. Uh, I spoke to Lee Hemsworth, who manages the Fidelity UK Opportunities Fund, and an example there is he's increased his exposure in names like Glencore and BHP Billiton. But more pertinent now, really, is for investors to adjust their portfolios for an inflationary environment. If they do get their timing right, they can shield against inflation and they could even benefit. Now, there are four types of companies that really look attractive. The first and the most obvious one is financials. High inflation means higher interest rates, and that just works well for banks given the way their mm. business model works. So that's why a number of income fund managers in particular have recently topped up on names like HSBC. Food retailers are another interesting hedge against the new inflationary backdrop. That's because of how the cash cycle works in these businesses. So we buy a tin of beans this week, but the retailer only pays the supplier 60 days later, often at an old price. Now, because we as consumers don't know which goods are susceptible to inflation, retailers can be really quite cheeky and push through price increases across the board. The opposite thing happens in a deflationary environment. Now, if anything, Marmite Gate was a clear warning that price rises are the new normal. Then finally, 
Also remember that inflation is this Jekyll and Hyde character. It erodes wealth, but it also erodes debt. That's good news for borrowers like the government, the biggest borrower of all. Oh, yeah. People with high levels of debt and businesses. So a company with with fixed debt only needs to generate positive free cash flow to make a significant gain. So two names I'd highlight in that space is Tesco, which has high levels of debt and it's a food retailer. Of course, Sainsbury's for the income investor comes with an attractive dividend yield of over 4%. And finally, it's worth looking for companies with pricing power, those strong niche players that can push through price increases because they've got what Warren Buffett refers to as a competitive moat. So the company is the business, it's competitive advantage is the moat around the castle, if the company is the castle, um, that gives the company the ability to push through price increases. Excellent. Well, thanks very much there to Micah Curry, our income investor columnist. You can read her column, How Long Can Investors Play the Inflation Trade, online now at ft.com slash money. With the record number of deals on offer on credit cards, it's perhaps easy to be tempted to spend money. However, the Financial Conduct Authority is clamping down on persistent credit card debt and could even waive some charges altogether. Joining me now to discuss is Jennifer Thompson, FT reporter. Welcome, Jennifer. Hello. So what was the big noise from the FCA this week? Well, the FCA is asking lenders to do more with those struggling with what they call persistent debt. And what they mean by that is people who are making minimum or very close to the minimum repayments on their credit cards. Um, And they say if after 18 months the charges and the interest fees you're paying on your credit card debt being carried over month to month is is higher than the you know the amount you're actually paying mm. down of the the loan outstanding then you're in what they call persistent debt they estimate 3.3 million people are in this situation so what they've suggested is a strategy for intervention so they're saying that if after 18 months you're in this situation your lender should contact you and ask for faster repayments. And then if another 18 months goes by and the situation still hasn't improved, they should either suspend your card if you're uh, able but unwilling to pay, or they should work on a repayment plan with you if you can't do it. And that would include things like scrapping fees and interest. Well, what could this mean for customers who have a lot of credit card debt? Well, in and of itself, it's probably not a huge development. I mean, the key thing is this is about giving customers information. Um, and obviously, the time frames involved are very big indeed. So, you know, the move has been welcomed broadly by card companies and debt charities. But one I spoke to, Step Change, you know, pointed out that really it's only after 36 months that people are could be forced to actively address this. Now, that's, you know, a fairly long period of time in itself. And obviously, you know, the minimum repayments, they could go up slightly, um, but you there's a huge difference between the absolute minimum you'd be paying back um, and, you know, the maximum of clearing your balance. So, you know, it does leave, you know, quite a, a wide door. So people could still be, you know, carrying debt for, for many years. And the banks, of course, could be making lots of lovely exactly. profits out of it all. But statistics show us that consumer debt is rising fast. Now, for those of us who are careful with our money, um, in which I count all of our podcast listeners, I'm sure, should we be worried that this boom in borrowing is creating systemic financial risk? 
Well, yes and no. I mean, one important thing to to say is that, you know, in some ways this points to a good thing. You know, there is a lot of competition with credit cards now. You know, there are loads of providers out there with interest rates being so low. So if you're good with managing your money, you can actually get a pretty good deal. So in some ways, it's never there's never been a better time to be a borrower. That said, the amount on banks' balance sheets is creeping up. You know, last year, around £19 billion was on their balance sheets relating to credit card debt compared to £12 billion pounds of mortgages. So it's, it's absolutely enormous. Um, and the question really is how sustainable all of this is and also whether it, you know, points at people uh, having financial difficulties. So, you know, as opposed to using a credit card for disposable um, income, disposable spending, they're using it to pay for the essentials and just using it to get by month to month. Now, this is something that's, you know, clearly starting to concern regulators. So last week, the Bank of England's Prudential Regulation Authority launched a review into consumer lending standards. We've obviously had the guidance from the FCA this week and they're currently um, conducting a study into the high cost of credit and then just yesterday the Bank of England's Financial Policy Committee is also set, made some comments on how you know these sort of introductory deals and you know interest rate free periods you know are fueling credit spending so at the moment there aren't really any hard and fast conclusions about, you know, how damaging all of this could be. But I think there are definitely red flags being raised by regulators and they're they're clearly taking a keen interest in this. Thanks very much there to Jennifer Thompson, FT reporter. You can read more on this story next week at ft.com slash money. Finally, if you're lucky enough to be jetting off for the Easter break, then watch your wallet at the airport. You may find that you're tempted to spend more than you really wanted to, as there are many cash traps for the unwary traveller. Jonathan Ely has written a fabulous column all about his top 10 airport bugbears this weekend, but as he's jetted off himself, I'm joined instead by FT reporter Robert Wright. Robert, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Well, our colleague Jonathan has come up with 10 things that really annoy him about airports, but how many of them did you agree with? Well, the first thing I would say here is this is the archetypal rich world problem. The other week, I had to go at short notice to Berlin as a day trip. I got a flight with EasyJet for £73.70. I was whisked from one side of Western Europe to the other quickly, efficiently, in an aluminium tube. And it strikes me the idea that we're whinging about the cost of food at the airport. It's somewhat extraordinary when we bear in mind both the ultimate miracle of the current European and American air traffic system, the amount of choice we have in that, and actually the extraordinarily low prices that that one sees from so many airlines at the moment. I've been covering airlines for the last little while, and, and, and one can see that their earnings are suffering. So that's my first sort of feeling about it. Now, Jonathan says in his column that his inner Yorkshireman complains about many of these things. As you can probably tell from my accent, I've got slightly more than an inner Scotsman about me. So many of these things do strike me as, as pretty sensible. I certainly, for example, I've just come back from living in the United States for four years. I had frequently to travel from New York to LaGuardia's airport. Most people travel to and from that airport by taxi, not me. I got the subway and I got a bus. It's perfectly good. You're ever travelling to LaGuardia, Q70 bus from Jackson Heights subway station is the way to get there. Absolute fraction of the cost. Don't get ripped off by a taxi going to and from that airport. I well, it's um, it's interesting you said that because the thing that's really got readers going on FT.com is the high cost of train services to the London airports with the Heathrow Express, which can cost as much as £27 for a single 15-minute journey, being particularly whinged about. I'll be blunt, that annoyed me because... 
With Heathrow Express, okay, so it's a 15-minute journey. Well, so, so what would you rather it was longer for the money is the, the first thing I would say about it. But the other point about it is the Heathrow Express was built as a private enterprise by BAA. They spent billions of pounds tunnelling under the airport. Many of us remember in the 1990s that, in fact, they found out the tunnelling system didn't work very well and they had a collapse in the tunnel. Uh, it was an incredibly expensive piece of infrastructure to provide and they're still paying the cost of, of building those tunnels. So what do people expect when somebody spends billions of pounds on a new rail line do you expect that it's going to be cheap is obviously not so i'm not i say i was slightly irritated by that and there is the alternative of the underground i've frequently taken that myself when it's when it's been more convenient and particularly when i've been paying myself so you know you can take the piccadilly line if you're against paying for heathrow express but you know those tunnels didn't get put there by themselves and they didn't cost nothing to put there well indeed as jonathan himself does but i have to say my favorite item of his was say no to fast track and i'll read out an extract for the economy it says instead of employing more security staff to reduce overcrowding some airports now charge passengers five pounds each to jump the queue every time i see this the yorkshireman in me roars no bloody way well, as, yeah, well, I looked at that and I thought, so people actually pay for that? Well, of course, I mean, of course you don't pay for that. That's absurd. You make sure you get to the airport in time and you go through the normal system. So, yeah, I mean, m- many of these things are obvious rip-offs and uh, nobody's obliging you to pay for them. And, you know, say, you're getting whisked across Europe in an aluminium tube quickly and efficiently with plenty of choice. What are you getting worked up Should be about? grateful for the big things. Well, <laughs> thank you there to the FT's Robert Wright. You can read Jonathan's article, 10 Ways to Beat the Airport Blues, online now at ft.com slash money or on the back page of the money section in this weekend's newspaper. That's all from the money show this week. And it's also all from me for the next three weeks because I am myself flying off in an aluminium tube to Sicily to celebrate my 40th birthday. I will be back in May. In the meantime, if you've got a story you'd like the FT Money team to follow up or a question to pose to our team of financial experts, get in touch. Our email address, money at ft.com, tweet us at ftmoney or comment on our articles online at ft.com slash money. James Pickford will be back to present the podcast next Thursday for you at the usual time. Goodbye. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., when you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.